Vintage Championship Results and Banded Restricted List updates on episode 95 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 95 of So Many Insane Plays, our Vintage Championship Results and Banded Restricted List updates review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. got some topics to talk about here uh, today yes, steve <laughs> but um we don't have many announcements so i don't want to d- uh, belabor the point i just want to remind folks that in the uh, southwest michigan area here we have two locations that have full proxy vintage events each month in grand rapids at the gaming warehouse in granville the fourth sunday of each month so it's coming up in a couple weeks here and in battle creek at perfect storm comics and games the third saturday of each month if anyone has any questions about that, you can reach out to me. Steve, any announcements for you this episode? Not not, here, not as of yet. I'll just remind folks that the, the final vintage playoff is on Saturday, December 7th. So again, you need 35 uh, format points to play in that. That's the final opportunity to get into the 40-person um, tournament that will be held on Saturday, January 11th. Excellent. And qualifies you for the, the Pro Tour. Right, right. (laughs) And we'll be covering that, the lead up to it, and the results from that, obviously, very closely. So this episode, we're here to talk about the Vintage Championship results. We're going to talk about the metagame at large. We're going to talk about the top eight. We're going to talk about the winner. And we're going to talk about how those results informed the ban and restricted list update that Wizards announced just yesterday. And then we'll, we'll talk about that and the implications thereof. So let's get started by talking about Vintage Champs as a whole. So Steve, 2019 Vintage Champs was another pretty successful one in my eyes. Attendance was a little down from last year, and we didn't do a preview show, but it's something that I would have predicted, given the late scheduling, given the weekend in question, Halloween weekend, as well as given the overall Sturm and Drang associated with the format, right? Mm -hmm. And so this year we had 310 registered players, 302 of whom actually played in the event. Yeah, I told someone at the beginning of the weekend that I thought it would be between I think I said the range was was like 280 to 350, and specifically I thought that there would be about 325. So it was, again, very close. Remember a couple years ago how I predicted, I think it was exact? <laughs> it was the exact <laughs> number, yeah. And it was, that was like, awesome. It was, like an, it was like an irregular number as well. It wasn't like a nice <laughs> yes. round. <laughs> that was pretty good. So 310 is obviously down from last year. What was last year's number, 380? I don't recall. Yeah, it was it was much closer to 400 last year. I don't remember the exact figure, but so we're down pretty significantly, but that's not much of a surprise. So much dynamicism yeah. in the format, a lot of and, and as well as the scheduling for Eternal Weekend as yes. a whole, 
yeah. hopefully both of those things will be improved next year. Right. I mean, I think there are multiple factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one thing that has become apparent is the European contingent has dwindled year after year to this event. Yes, that's true. We didn't see any of the Germans that we're so used to. We didn't see um, Ido-san uh, from Japan. Right. It, Andreas Peterson came, but he was kind of the, you know, an ex- exception. <laughs> yeah, that's coming true. Out, it was nice to see him. Coming out of the, the VSL, his VSL victory. Yeah. Um, it was great to, great to meet him in person. Uh, the other thing is, I mean, certainly being on Halloween weekend again is impactful. But I also think just the, you know, the... Um, Look, the main events are scheduled in advance, but I think it impacts the overall tournament when you know all the details aren't really ironed out until really late. The yeah. people who are maybe on the fence, you know, maybe fall the other way on the fence, fall behind the fence as opposed to inside the <laughs> yeah. inside the fence. And so I think that really becomes a, a you know, it, that's 30, 40, 50 people right there, maybe yeah. more. I also think there was a probably small number, but an impact from the addition of the modern championship that was right. at the same time as Vintage Champs on Friday. Right. One the might say people who might otherwise play in the Vintage Tournament right. just to play. You know, that's that's a big chunk of people right there. Yeah, exactly. And so all of that adds up to we're down a little bit, but still a very healthy and great tournament with lots of great people and players. Yeah, I would say so. And I mean, I think the the vintage leagues, the vintage challenges, they all suggest a really dynamic and healthy format, at least in terms of attendance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, yeah, when I last true. looked in the league, I think it was like 110, 120 in the leagues. And the, the challenges challenge had the, 61, I think. Yeah, I mean, the challenges are, I mean, they're up, I would say, even, you know, 15% from where they were like a year and a half ago. Yeah. You know, when they, there was some challenges a while back, they were like high 40s, low 50s. Now I feel like they're consistently in the, you know, 60s, 70s range. So yeah. I think mood about the format is improved and we'll talk about the practical <laughs> effects of that thanks to the uh, the new restriction too. That, that's a funny way of, uh, that's a funny term to apply to the format, mood. <laughs> <laughs> it is though. I mean, I've, I, in my close friends that we talk to about vintage on a regular basis, they're all like, hey, I'm kind of energized by the format now. It's it's more interesting than it was. And so that's just my anecdotal observation. But well, I think some of the data supports it. Interesting is a very subjective word. I mean, I think the whole <laughs> format has been interesting for the entire year. Yeah, I, you're not, right. Not because I, of I restrictions. Did, I did mean interesting in, in a positive way. Like, it is interesting to them. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, it, the reason I also highlight that word is because, you know, the the new printings in this year have really shaken the format. But also, then you layer onto it the restrictions, they also shake it in a different way. So are you know are people responding to the printings or are they responding to the ban and restricted list policy? Yeah. Or both? Well, yeah, um, to my observation, it's, it's both, yes. It's all of those things at once. And for you and I, who take a very analytical, data-driven approach to the format, this has been, and we said it before, an unprecedented year in a number of ways. And our year-end review show is going to be a fun one. Yes, so that's <laughs> going to be an exciting one. Please look out for that. You know, uh, th- we're going to do again every year. We give away our moxies, and it's. I think it's going to be a fairly contentious year this year. At the end, there's a lot. There's a lot there's to a, go on on all yeah, fronts. So, so deck of the year. I already have my front runner for that. Um, yeah. Cart new card of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, set st- set and story of the year are categories. So, uh, you know, I think it's going to be contentious and, and maybe all four categories. <laughs> it's I gonna agree. Be, yeah, it's going to be the, fun. Yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, I already, I've already got my set locked in, but, um, okay. yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tease that right now. 
we'll get to that in due time. So let's start. We talked about the the size of the format. Sorry, the size of the event, I should say. Let's talk about the breakdown of archetypes in the event. So yeah, before thank- we do that, yeah, just want to flag Jason Jaco, Eternal Central, who who <laughs> we actually saw him running out. What was it? Sunday night. We saw. We're like, what is he doing here? <laughs> he he was running out of the hall, and he had a box of all the deck lists from all the formats. And he he literally scanned them all to the web his website, so you can download the actual scans of the deck lists, all of them for all yep. three major tournaments. Yes, we have our usual suspects to thank, in addition to Jayco, because uh, Ryan Eberhard and Matt Murray, in addition to uh, Manadrain user Log, whose name I don't know offhand, I'm sorry, they did their usual work to parse those printed deck lists into digital deck lists and do a metagame analysis for us, which is posted on the Manadrain for all to view and which we will be referencing here. So let's talk about deck representation from an archetype standpoint. So the largest single archetype, and we'll talk about this in more detail, this year was Xerox at 18.5% or 56 players. Now we know that Xerox... That's remarkable, by the way, that there was nothing that was larger than 20%. That's true. That is very noteworthy as compared to almost every year prior since we've been doing this. 18.5% 18.5% is a pretty low number for the largest represented deck. <laughs> the, these are legacy numbers, the rest of the archetypes. <laughs> yeah. If you and, disaggregate. I mean, Xerox would be a huge number in legacy because right. it'd be all the Delver decks. But Right. And, and we know that the Xerox category in and of itself at this point features a couple of different builds, but it's strongly dominated by the Jeskai Arcanist lists. Yes. Yes. But... But Ryan has provided a breakdown of decks by different tags, that is, different kinds of groupings. And the Arcanist decks were actually only 11.9% of the metagame in total. So there were two-thirds of the Xerox category. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Yep, which, is, which would, be, would have been expected going in. And it's, next- probably, it's probably because there were you know, Xerox decks that were either rug, you know, so they weren't, they, they weren't well, I guess rug, I, yeah, rug doesn't usually use Arcan- Arcanist. Correct. So, so this, there may have been Rug, because Rug did really well last year, and or Jeskai that didn't have Arcanist and or Delver variants. Yeah, I would that agree with of all thing. of that. There was also a, a smattering in recent challenges of the, um, the what's the, the, the mana, the, the um, oh, shoot, the, the card that when your opponent plays spells, they take shocks. There's a creature that does that. Oh, the Eidolon of the Great Revel? Yeah, Eidolon type decks. Yeah, in, okay. within the Xerox archetype. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. The second largest archetype was, surprisingly, Oath at 13.2% or 40 players. Well, it's, it's both a surprise and it's not a surprise. We talk every year mm-hmm. how Oath is overrepresented at champs. Yes, we and do. They, and there are different theories for that. I mean, one theory is that, you know, since Oath won two consecutive years, people who just play in this event are more likely to bring Oath since it does well. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, but that doesn't explain Oath this year. Oath, I think, cratered <laughs> last year, if I recall correctly. Yes. I think what happened here is the metagame swung towards Oath at the 11th hour in a big way. Yeah. And that impact really showed up in this paper tournament in ways that are kind of surprising. Just Very. given the enormity of, you know, 40 players. Like, you could imagine, like, paper, the, the vintage challenges swinging vi- the paper tournaments modestly. But there were only basically two weeks where Oath was doing really well. I think it won the week prior to this tournament, mm-hmm. which means that some number of these players just said, what has won the most recent vintage tournament of note or of record, and then just brought that. Yeah, agreed. 
it's worth noting a few things. Part of the narrative for Oath was the the surge in a new Oath list that was designed heavily around Oko Thief of Crowns. Yes. And that we can talk more about that because Oko is one of the sub-themes of the narrative for this event and features strongly in the attraction to the Oath list that was popular, which was heavily rug-based Oath. And with Oko providing a very strong universal answer to most of the anti-Oath hate cards, which is pretty powerful inherently. Yes. I mean, o- Oko kind of just burst in the scene mm-hmm. in the weeks immediately preceding this tournament. And That's right. I have to say that I personally underestimated Oath in the sense that I both I underestimated the boost that Oko would give to this archetype, and I underestimated the the prevalence of Oath that would appear and the persistence that it would have in this tournament. I just did not think <laughs> that it a paper event where people, where players who would be, you know, have been brewing for weeks, if not months, and planning and hiding their tech would be vulnerable to Oath in any particular way. I mean, I personally thought that there would be zero Oath in this top eight, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't even think that Oath would be 13 and a quarter of the metagame. Like, if you had asked me the week before, I would have said Oath would be like th- my wildest imagination would be like 11%. Realistically, <laughs> yep. I would say like 7, 8%. And that's giving like a like 40% of that is just crediting people who play Oath in this tournament. <laughs> I agree completely. It, my prediction would have been sub 10% as well, it, it, given the factors you described and trying to boost that number just to account for the, the traditional effect here. And it was way exceeded, which is fascinating. It's also worth noting to me that Oath's win percentage against the field was actually pretty poor. Yeah. And it's well, you, a strong reason why it wasn't represented in the top eight. It was only 46.7% against the field. Yeah. Sub, sub five, 500 pretty, pretty significantly. Yeah. If given, given that like a percent is a huge percent at these aggregate numbers. <laughs> exactly. And you have to get down to the sixth and seventh place archetypes to see any lower win percentages against the field. So it's, a little bit of an asterisk to say that Oath was the second most played deck. It is technically correct, the best kind of correct, but the next most played archetype was Workshops at 12.9% or 39 players. And if you're paying attention, that's one fewer player than Oath. So Oath and Shops were pretty directly tied at 39 slash 40 players. Yeah. And I would have expected Shops to be in, in second place going in if we had predicted. I would have of expected course. that. It's also worth noting that... Uh, the method that Ryan and Matt use to identify these archetypes differentiates between shops and Eldrazi. Yes. Whereas we want to combine taxing archetypes together frequently. There were 11 players on Eldrazi, a pretty small number, less than 4% of the metagame. I think it's remarkably small given that this tournament is the budget prize is so significant. Uh, Well, we can talk about some reasons for that, but I completely agree. Um, But if you were to combine those together into a taxing group, then... It would have been the second most played archetype in, through that lens. About, what, 16%, rough 17%-ish? Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. Pr- much closer to the Xerox number. So, all in all, I would say that Shops was still less represented than I would have predicted. I still would have predicted in the 15 to 20% range, probably. And so, it's, it's pretty surprising that it's uh, as low as it is. This is definitely the lowest Shops representation at Champs for years. I would have to go back and scour our I history, pr- but... I'm pretty sure that we were we were shocked how low dr- shops was. I think it was last year. They we were, and, and there but it was, wasn't even this low. Hmm. Yeah, well, because you and I were predicting, I thought twenty to twenty five percent shops last year, and it was less than that. But it wasn't this low. 
I'm going to I'm going to find our show yeah. notes for that. Keep going. Okay. There's a bit of a scrum for the next few places, right? So for fourth, fifth, sixth place, there's a whole bunch of archetypes that were within one player of each other. Next is paradoxical outcome, 24 players or 8%. Right on the heels is bug with 23 players, also rounds up to 8%. And right behind that with 22 players was both dredge and combo, as well as other. So a pretty firm scrum in the three, four, five kind of, or sorry, four, five, six kind of position between dredge, bug, and PO. I do think it's noteworthy. The dredge number is pretty low, seven and a quarter percent. The PO number is is always one that we have an interesting time discussing, right? Because PO has a high variance in terms of representation month over month. I firmly expected PO to be pretty down this event, and I think a lot of people did as well. The representation at 8% is it's pretty modest, right? The win percentage for PO, though, is the highest in all of these archetypes. Yeah. 57.8%. That's really, that's that's a high number. It's a very high number for an overall win percentage against the field. So, I mean, it only, at 8% of the field, it's significant enough that we're not talking about like a, you know, a 3%er that has like a huge standard deviation that basically engulfs, you know, takes you from sub 500 to plus five, you know, to 60%. So this, this, I assume the standard deviation means that this is ab- above 50%, even, you know. Um, so this is, that's a, that's a really high percentage. It suggests that PO was probably the deck to play in this tournament, honestly, if, you, if your goal was to make top eight. Yeah. And some of that is contributed to the fact that it was underrepresented in challenges leading up to the event. So there was, there was low buzz about PO. To the point where people were saying, yeah, it's, it's probably not a factor. And as you'll see when we get to the top eight, the list that performed the best in this event, putting fully two copies in the top eight, was the Rug, Oko, Oko uh, Mana Gorger, Hydra, yeah, Narset list that uh, I don't know if he was the very first one to come up with it exactly, but uh, Justin Gennari uh, play, uh, popularized on his stream. And a, a number of good players picked up, and it obviously performed very well. So there's a little, there's a couple of com, uh, factors contributing here. The representation of PO was still relatively low. Eight percent is a pretty modest number. The buzz around it was very down, from my perception, and talking to people going into the event and uh, on the day of. And there was a somewhat techie new list that I don't think a lot of people had prepared for or again. Yeah. Yeah, it's just also blazingly fast, and 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 PO is really, it's the kind of deck that in a in a wide broad field you could easily start out two and zero right against like unpowered decks that are just very hard to compete. You know, it's yeah. just it's just because it's it's extremely high power level, you can get, chalk up a lot of free wins even through like rounds four and five. And this particular list, this rug based one, had a lot of resiliency. Between yeah. po- fully four Mana Gorger Hydras post-board, the versatility that Oko provides, and the explosiveness that Narset can provide with certain draws. These lists were playing Narset plus Time Twister and Wheel of Fortune, right? Which yeah. we got to see happen in the top eight, for example. All those factors combined mean uh, what you just said. It, it had a lot going for it in this diverse field. So this and scrum, a lot this of built-in answers to the things that people were bringing to bear to fight PO inherently. So the scrum, as you said, was dredge, bug, uh, PO, and combo, mm-hmm. combo, and to a lesser extent, lands kind of yes. in that, that, in that, in, the, in that tier uh, in terms of like 
the percents that were basically like six to eight percent of the exactly. field. I hadn't um, said it before now, but lands had 19 players. Right. Now, what's interesting, I, so this number for combo is huge. It really is. Seven, seven and a quarter is large. And I, and I think it's because DPS won a couple, like, won at least one challenge, if I recall correctly. Yeah, was up it two or event. three weeks before? Yeah. Yeah. And so DPS yeah. is, a, again, same thing as is PO, right? DPS is a really high power level deck and can do really well in a big field. Um, I, I think I'm a little surprised by how poorly it did at 40%. It's basically one of the worst performing decks in this, in terms of the major archetypes. And when you look at the, I faced DPS twice and I was playing Dredge. <laughs> it's pretty and unusual. I, I know, I beat it both times, fortunately. Um, but Dredge, apparently, according to the subtitle, has uh, the sub uh, table, rather, has a 70% win percentage against combo in the data. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. Um, what, the, let me see what combo actually did well against. Okay, combo had a 57% win percentage against Eldrazi. That's a given. 58% against Oath. Oh my god, it had an 18% against PO. Well, that explains wow. pretty much everything. Uh-huh. And then 27% against against Xerox. It had 70% against lands. So, <laughs> so I think that I think that those the two the the, the PO percent sh- tells you the key, right? Like PO was probably the deck to play if you wanted to make top 8. Yep. Although Dredge also Dr- you didn't mention this, but Dredge had a 56% win percentage and it was 22 players, six, 7 mm-hmm. and a quarter of the field. So it was the next best performing archetype in terms of win percent. And I, I, I mean, obviously, I knew that going in. That's why I played, played Dredge. Yeah, it's interesting. Dredge and PO had almost identical numbers on paper. Right. 22 versus 24 players. 56 50. versus 57.8% win percentage. That's almost, those are functionally identical numbers. They're very close. Very close. Yeah. Um, but, but I think, let me just, I'm just looking at PO's win percentages. PO, <laughs> this is funny. PO's only so I had two bad matchups according to the data, mm-hmm. and it was forty two and a forty three percent against Xerox, which is not great, of course. I mean, it's Naturally. not terrible, but that's kind of to be expected. But it had a horrendous matchup against Eldrazi at twenty eight point five percent. So, so I guess I, did, I I said earlier that PO can do really well against a powerless field. Eldrazi accepted, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's. That's basically, I think, what what happened here is people brought a lot more PO and combo, mm-hmm. and the combo players got crushed. The PO players, well, with so, with a few notable exceptions, right? The yep. PO players just did really well. Dredge did really well. Um, Oath slid downward, but really, the deck to play in this tournament—not if you wanted to make top eight, but if you wanted to win the tournament—was Bug, <laughs> because Bug beat. It, Bug was well positioned to beat. I think it might not. I don't know if Bug is great against Xerox. You need what you needed to do to win this tournament was basically what you need to be doing two or three months ago. Is you play Bug to beat PO and Dredge, the two best decks, and then you tune it to to be resilient against Xerox. And if you could do that, then your chances of winning this tournament are great because you're naturally a predator for shops. So you've kind of got the main axes of the metagame under control. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of my bird's eye takeaway about this event. Also, you said that the Eldrazi number was surprisingly low at 3.6%. I think a lot of Eldrazi's lunch was eaten by lands. I think yes. there's a lot of <laughs> unpowered lands in this event. It became the so de facto awesome. unpowered list. I at, love that. I love that, 19 by the way. players, yeah, six, six and a third percent. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The unrestriction of Fast Bond, it didn't have a powerful effect on the top tables of this event. 
but it had its presence was known in the unpowered yeah. arena. The top the top placing budget deck and budget was defined kind of that, they'll <laughs> need to be rethought. Yeah, that'll be <laughs> <laughs> was 20 for, 21, 21 points. I don't know where that twenty fourth place. Twenty fourth place with twenty one mm-hmm. points. That's pretty good. Um, was a fast bond depths green white red. Uh, basically fast bond life on the loam crop rotation and exploration deck with the combo of dark depths and thespian stage. Mm-hmm. Kind of it's it's this isn't exactly what we had seen before, right? We'd seen the decks that were kind of really the hot deck going into the tournament was the Zias bond deck. Yeah. Which was the opposite of budget. <laughs> it's the most expensive <laughs> deck in the field, right? Right. For anyone who doesn't know, that deck played workshops and bazaars in addition and to other tabernacles. Power. And tabernacles, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you think your legacy mana base is expensive. <laughs> Try building that oh, deck. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it looks like the top placing ZS Bond deck was uh, Raja James of Team Sirius, who ended up in 16th place. So, top 16 finish for that list. Nice. Yeah, but then the next highest placing lands-based strategy, which was unpowered, was the deck you mentioned, piloted by Patrick Humfleet. So cool! I yeah. love. I lo- I thought Vas- Vastbond's been awesome for the format, but obviously I was yeah, pushing hopefully. for the unrestriction of Vastbond. So <laughs> right, hopefully it stays impartial. that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, I think it definitely had made things exciting. I mean, the ZS Bond deck was exciting. Yep. None of the fast the crab shack deck is, infi- is exciting. exciting, right? Fun yep. to play, fun to watch. Good for good for uh, uh, players. Good for observers. Good for entertainment mm-hmm. value at home, and and not dominant, not too not too good. So perfect yeah. and open up budget cat. When I was arguing for the unrestriction of fast bond, I didn't even consider the budget possibilities, which is kind of like a in retrospect a pretty large omission. Yeah, I, I agree. That's it's actually pretty great. All right, so shall we move on to the top eight then? Let's do it. So shall we go from eighth place up? Sure. Build, build the suspense. Okay, so we know that four through eight are organized by uh, by a combination of the the way the top eight played out in final standings. So in eighth place, we have Ryan Eberhart, friend of the show, and who we've already referenced, has provided us with data here. Ryan played the Xerox or Rug Planeswalkers deck, uh, yeah. very close to what uh, his friend and ours, Matt Murray, uh, piloted to a good finish on his stream just a couple of days earlier and uh, was taken up by a number of players, myself included, and of which there were actually two copies in this top eight, which is pretty cool. So for anyone who doesn't know and is is only learning about this right here and now, this Rug Planeswalker deck is, it, it's, a, it's a Xerox kind of model, meaning we're talking about a four preordained deck here, but it's light on creatures, two Tarmogoyf and one young Pyromancer, which a, what a weird combo, by the way. And Ryan <laughs> it's filled, like 2000, yeah. 2013 is calling Ryan. It wants <laughs> its creature combos back. Nice. and But then bolstered by a number of Planeswalkers. So in ascending order by a mana lot. cost, we're talking about two Renin Six, one Oko, three Narset, two Dak Faden, and one Jace the Mind Sculptor. So that is fully nine Planeswalkers, which five is a really... Di- five- 
five or and six different ones <laughs> five different planeswalkers for a total of nine yeah which is an unprecedented Wild. number basically in vintage like nine is a is a huge number of planeswalkers and then the rest of the deck is is basically rug xerox stuff like you would expect lightning bolts Bolt, for removal yeah uh depending on who is piloting the deck there was different mixtures of one-off cards like ryan has a, a one main deck nature's claim for example other players like myself had had some different things and uh, of note the the mana base features two mystic sanctuary which is worth talking about and which is something that uh, matt murray really enjoyed on his stream and, it, and a lot of people has picked up based on that and then the the sideboard features some technology that again that matt really made famous like pulverize pulverize is a card that uh, against shops and, and a few other archetypes has not really seen a lot of play lately but has become much more usable thanks to renin six basically the fact that renin six can rebuild your mana base for you after a pulverize makes it far more reasonable against shops for example and, and other wasteland or, or taxing archetypes so anyway that was ryan in eighth place in seventh place we have brian koval recent vintage champ playing the paradoxical rug deck that is the the two oko up up to four post sideboard mana gorger hydra uh rug po list that was popularized by justin Gennari. one characteristic of this list that we haven't mentioned before now is the main deck grape shot as uh, <laughs> one of the short list of win conditions which also doubles as removal right and control yeah. for things like lavinia's and things like opposing narsets right so grape shot can clear the way of problematic permanence creatures of walkers and allow other cards like Mana Gorge or Hydra to to run in for the win. In some cases, Elk running in for the win. Jeez. Yeah. So I think this version of PO is definitely, at the moment, uh, a go-to version of the deck. We'll see how it evolves in the light of the restriction that we're going to talk about soon. Next in sixth place, the lone representative of a non-blue deck in this top eight, Jody Keith on Golos Workshops. For those of you who may not be familiar, this is a slightly more flexible and more controlling version of workshops that toes the line between aggro and prison strangely this deck has for example one smokestack two ensnaring bridge one god pharaoh's statue so this is a much bigger and a little more prison focused workshop list as opposed to ravager shops there are no uh, arc bound ravagers in this list for example so this is it's a little bit more aggressive than what we would call stacks because it still has a, a slightly heavier creature component, including Golos, including some walking ballistas and stone coil serpents. But this deck is really designed around Golos fundamentally to serve as a bit of a toolbox. So for example, in the main deck, you can grab the one copy of Tabernacle, the one copy of Caracas, a copy of Buried Ruin or Inventor's Fair, things like that. So there's a bit of a toolbox for Golos this, this in the remi main. This reminds me of the list that got second place a couple of years back. Yeah, the Jacob Corey smokestack null rod list yeah. with Staring Bridge. Yeah, I mean, this, yeah, it has a lot of that DNA. This only has one smokestack, but it's basically got the rest of the control. You know, it's the it's the suite of control cards in Workshop. Yeah, you know, Prison. It's yep. it, and, and it has certain advantages in certain matchups because of the flexibility that Golos provides against Oath. For example, you can search up your main deck Caracas, and it's very hard for them to fight. Against any of the go-wide strategies, you've got access to a main deck tabernacle. And, and again, there's three Golos in this deck. So you've got lots of ways to find these uh, one-off land. Yeah. And Stone Cold Serpent would appear to be an aggro card, 
but I think it's got really important defensive capacities, right? It's 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 in part like an, a planes. It's, it's sort of the slash slash panther function, right? I mean, it's a planeswalker killer. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The trample and and uh, really does a number on planeswalkers. Can't, can't and, be elked, right? Yeah, that's right. You can't you can't oko it. You can't dack it. And there's a pretty strong emphasis on multicolored cards in the format right now. Stone Cold Serpent has become pretty ubiquitous. So that's a very cool list and a version of shops that I would expect to be in it for the long haul at the moment. Did you mention the eight Leyline sideboard? <laughs> no, I did not. That's four Leyline of the Void, four Leyline of Sanctity. Which to, we ran in 2011. Yeah, to really get one over on, yeah. on Tendril's decks and on Oath decks and on any, and, and Hercule's Recall decks, right? It's, Leyline of Sanctity yep. has hit a lot of hits in the format right now. All right, let's move on then to fifth place. That is, again, Rug Planeswalkers by Jeremy Pinter. Jeremy's list, again, inspired by Matt Murray's list and has a lot in common with what we've already reviewed by Ryan Eberhard. Some notable differences for Jeremy include the, the creature base is three Goifs and one Snapcaster. The Planeswalker base does not include Jace the Mind Sculptor, so it's two Ren, two Oko, two Dak, and three Narset. Still nine in total. And... The other notable difference is that Jeremy has main deck Shattering Spree rather than Nature's Claim. Six of one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just just tuning at the edges of this rug Planeswalker archetype. All right. In fourth place, Paradoxical Mentor, played by Justin. And this is a Jeskai build, which focuses on Monastery Mentor and Bolas' Citadel as win conditions. Wild. Yeah, this build is actually a little bit more of an established one as opposed to the rug builds, right? right. Um, so Justin has two Narsets and and a, a Snapcaster and a Mentor. It's very low on win conditions, this list, but the presence of Yawgmoth's Will gives it some resiliency in that sense. And obviously, this deck is still incredibly, incredibly explosive. This is a four-color list. Justin has no red cards in the main, I don't think. Does he have Wheel? No, he does not. But he has access to in the sideboard Pyroblast and for one Narsets. volcanic island. Yeah, for for Narsets and other problematic things, he actually does have one volcanic in the main, and then access to a second in the sideboard. He has a main deck chain of vapor too. Yes, as well as repeal and Hercules for his bounce package. In third place is the second copy of Paradoxical Rug, piloted by Brian Hockey. This list, I'm not sure if it's a full 75 exact the same as what brian koval played i haven't done the side-by-side comparison but to my eyes it has almost all the same components two two oko three narset oh there's one difference karn scion aversa one copy <laughs> in the main deck throwback but it, yeah but it has the, the grape shot it has the managorger hydras split between one and three main and side and otherwise this is this is the same as what we've discussed tactically and strategically so that's three it, po decks in the top eight that's right one Jeskai, well, one four-color, which is base Jeskai, and two copies, very similar copies of the rug list. So now we're talking about the finals. In second place, runner-up is Boston Shatterman with Jeskai Anarchist. <laughs> Let me say that again. Jeskai Arcanist. To my eyes, this list doesn't have many standout features, meaning the, the, the card selection seems pretty normal. What stands out to you, Steve? Well, it, it runs the, the balance of, of bolts and plows that I would run, which is two and two in this tournament. Mm-hmm. I like that. I think you need plows. Um, but he's got plenty of answers against Planeswalkers with two pyros and two bolts and a spell pierce. I don't think spell pierce is particularly great. But the um, he also has two Force of Negation, 
which has also become a staple in this archetype. Um, the only other thing that kind of, I mean, it looks it looks pretty standardish to me. The one deviation, I don't know if this is common, but Dovin's veto in the sideboard looks anomalous. That looks very anomalous to me. I agree. I I don't have the data to prove it, but I'd be very surprised if that was common. <laughs> yeah. The creature base here, just so our listeners can hear it, is one Mentor, two Pyromancer, two Lavinia, and three Dreadhorde Arcanist with some Containment Priests in the sideboard. I like this a lot. I think I probably would run maybe like a Snap instead of a Pyromancer there. But, you know, with the just because Dreadhorde can't flash back, you know, Dig and Time Walk and that good stuff. Right, he, right. You do have the uh, Mystic Sanctuary. I mean, I like this list a lot. This, yeah. The other thing about this this list is that it's got a lot of options against Dredge. I don't like the specific configuration that's here with four Crypt, one Trap, two Priest. I like a couple of Pithy Needles, but I think that's, you know, that's something else to bear in mind. Yeah, a good point. And also with the omnipresence of Oath in this format, it is, it's, it's a little bit surprising that Boston was able to do as well as he was. Uh, I don't know what he played against. I haven't talked to him about it. This list does not look especially well-positioned against Oath. There are two yes. priests in the board, and he has access to no cages and no Caracas, to my right. eyes, and, exactly. and two plows, right? Exactly. So the Oko builds no of Oath, yeah. right, the Oko builds of Oath are, I think, designed to prey on this kind of this configuration of Jeskai. Exactly. You know yeah. what I think he really benefited from? My guess is that he probably got a lot of value out of the two Null Rod effects in the sideboard. Oh, interesting. Typically, yeah. these decks only have one in, in the sideboard, like a Stony Science, but you have both. So yep. he, he, that, my guess is that in a, you know, a top eight, I didn't watch the top eight matches, but in a, in a field where the top tables had a lot of PO, that probably gave him a little bit of an edge. Yeah. And Dovin's Veto is a nice touch, right? It's, um, it's a straight up counter for, for PO and for Planeswalkers like Oko and Narset that just can't be interacted with. And, in, f- in his favor, in Boston's favor against decks like Oath, he actually has more counter magic that functions against the card Oath of Druids than the average Jeskai deck does, right? Post-sideboard, he has actually eight counter spells for the card Oath of Druid. In four Force of Will, two Force of Negation, a Spell Pierce, and a Dovin's Veto. True. That's actually significantly above average. All right, so our winner and first place deck is none other than Joe Brennan on Bug. This list, this is a very fun Bug list into my eyes. Because Joe has a lot of one-ofs in here that really speak to metagame positioning and just how he wanted to, to be positioned in, in various matchups. So I'd like to call out several of these one-ofs. In the main deck, we've got Misdirection times one, Flusterstorm times one, Spell Pierce, Force of Vigor, Fatal Push, Sylvan Library, Oko, Brazen Borrower, and <laughs> Vendillion Click. All of those cards are one-ofs in this list and all play different roles in different matchups, right? Furthermore, in the sideboard, he has access to one Toxic Deluge, which is interesting, one Liliana, The Last Hope, which I, we can talk about a little bit more, and his fourth Assassin's Trophy, I guess, doesn't count as a one-of. So I know that Joe is on record saying that the best card for Bug against Jeskai is Liliana, The Last Hope. Interesting. Which is an interesting assessment, yeah. And I, I heard him say, and I'm sorry, I don't actually know the context. I think it might have been his winning interview at the end of the day, where he said that he going into this event, he has planning on playing two Lilianas in his sideboard, and ended up cutting one. So, and, so, so and unpack ironically, that a bit. he who beats Jess Guy in the finals, <laughs> right? Unpack that. What makes this so effective? So, it, first of all, it's black, 
so it can't be pyroblasted. Uh, you can plus it immediately, which means it's like four, so it can't be yep. bolted. Yeah, what, the, effe- what- the effect on the Jeskai creature base is really the thing. The fact that her plus disables uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist, it kills young Pyromancer and Snapcaster Mage, and it renders uh, cards like Liliana and other, not Liliana, excuse me, Lavinia, uh, ineffective in combat. So they have to overcommit to the board in order to, to pressure Liliana the Last Hope, and almost all of his creatures, that is Joe's creatures, then are incredibly good in the face of that. So even his for, even his Deathrite Shamans will trade, no, I'm sorry, not trade, will kill and survive a Lavinia in combat because a Lavinia affected by Liliana the Last Hope is a, is a zero one, right? So they have to overcommit to the board and then your superior creatures really win the day. It's worth pointing out that the effect on Dreadcord Arcanist is doubly so, right? Because it, it turns it into a zero two, which means it's an ineffectual attacker, right? That also happens to disable its card advantage ability because the mana cost of spells that Arcanist can flash back is tied to its power. So you actually make it a negative one, two behind the scenes. The rules round up to zero. But the simple truth is you can't cast any spells with a Dreadhorde Arcanist that's been affected by this Liliana ability. Fascinating tech here. Fascinating bit of tech. Oh, and also, like, her second ability should not be understated. Put the top two cards of your library into your graveyard, then you may return a creature card from your graveyard to your hand. So she's got a card advantage ability, too, that you can use every other turn. It's actually every third turn if you want to keep her alive indefinitely. But you can use it multiple times before she even has to die. So, yeah. and, and, and it, let's not even talk about her ultimate, which is not impossible to get to in a protracted game against Jeskai and just completely in a, 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 a game over for them. They can't interact with her ultimate ability, which just produces unbounded zombies over time. Unreal. And the, yeah. and the, uh, the, all the one ofs can make that minus two ability really deadly because yeah, that's you, a good point. It's mid game. It's just a tutor. Yeah, that's a good point. And her ability to get creatures that function like spells is also very interesting, too, because uh, Brazen Borrower and Vendillion Click have very spell-like effects right. in the matchup, right? right? And you could functionally reuse uh, a Brazen Borrower, for example, by, by casting Petty Theft, casting Brazen Borrower, letting it die to something, and getting it back with Liliana to get the card advantage again. It's pretty cool. Neat. So Joe's Neat. list is very techy. I encourage the our audience to to look at it and consider the way he built this list. Joe has included one thing that a lot of bug pilots do not, and that I have always included in every copy of the deck, and that is gush. A lot of bug lists eschew gush, and there's some good reasons why, right? Your mana base has a pretty limited number of islands between four waste and strip effects and a bayou, right? It's hard to maximize mm-hmm. gush in this mm-hmm. list. But I still always include it because it is still such an incredible uh, mid-game card advantage spell. And it also subtly fixes your mana to cast Leovold Mm. in certain situations. Which he had two of. Yes. Fascinating. So I really love this list, Steve. Any other observations from your part? Um, He's got three Force of Vigors between main and side. I think Force of Vigor is kind of the metagame. It's kind of the defining card of the year. I mean, there's a lot of competition. But 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 force of vigor is what really allows decks like this to stretch across in f- combat. You know, obviously it's a little tricky when combating oath, but you know, naturally, you but it's still use quite useful. You know, it's it's really good against obviously excellent against shops, and he's also got two, two energy flux, which he just loves. You know, so he's yeah. loaded to bear uh, against against shops. 
Oh yeah. He's packed so much. I mean, and you have to. If you're gonna play Bug, you've gotta you've gotta get the metagame nailed right. I mean to a T. You have to be precise you have to be beyond precise. <laughs> you know, you I, can't you, there's no room for to, error. Yeah. I was going to make an observation along those lines as well. It's worth noting for our audience, especially if you're the sort who maybe hasn't played Bug and it don't maybe have internalized the notion that this is not a Xerox deck. It has a lot of DNA in common with Xerox, right? All the blue restricted cards. It's worth noting that for those of you who haven't played Bug, perhaps, and maybe haven't internalized, this is not a Xerox deck, right? It has a lot of DNA in common with a Xerox deck. Similar blue restricted cards, similar mana base, that kind of thing. And some similar interactive cards, of course. The thing is, this deck doesn't have preordained. It has all the other restricted ones, Brainstorm, Ponder, Ancestral, right? So there's still an aspect of deck, of deck selection that's there. But this deck's lack of preordain uh, contributes to what you just observed, which is you don't have as much control over your draws in the, mid in the early and mid games in, in the matchups where you might really need that. And as such, to your point, you really have to have your deck construction dialed in such that you know how every card functions in each matchup and know how to apply them in order to get the most value out of them. That is one of the key tricks for building and piloting bug. And Joe Brennan has clearly uh, done that to a T here. I couldn't agree more. One of the cards I love in his list that is easy, easily overlooked is misdirection. Oh yeah. I know you're a big talk fan of that. <laughs> we'll talk about how that can work in the Xerox matchup. Well, Misdirection famously has, has the, the, the most famous interaction is with Ancestral Recall, right? Like, insist, Misdirecting an Ancestral is just really living the dream. But he doesn't have it in here for that reason. He has it in here because when you need it to, it can function proactively as a fifth force of will. And that means it's easier to resolve some of your spells when they really need to. And so key things like Assassin's Trophy, which can otherwise be countered by your opponent's Force of Wills and Fluster Storms and a few other things, you can really force those through on key permanents. And specifically in the Jeskai matchup, the card Pyroblast has a really interesting and powerful interaction with and against uh, Misdirection. Pyroblast allowing you to remove uh, a blue Planeswalker in play, for example, one of Joe's Narsets or Okos can be turned against its caster to do exactly that on their side, which could be just devastating. And also, because you're a Leovold deck, assuming you can finagle things right, you can try to resolve Leovold when your opponent's tapped out of red mana, uh, disallowing them from pyroblasting it on the stack. Once Leovold's in play, them pyroblasting it, and especially if you have misdirection, just produces all kinds of benefits from for you. Because if they're forced to try and Pyroblast Leovold in play, not only do you get the trigger to draw a card off of Leovold, but then you can deploy Misdirection to double up on their Pyroblast, potentially either just straight up countering it, or better, removing one of their blue permanents. It can be totally devastating against Pyroblast in that way. Couldn't agree more. It's also just great against Lightning Bolt. Yes, for, for, for many reasons. of the same reasons, of course. Because the Xerox deck's primary removal uh, for Leovold is all, well, it's mostly counterable by misdirection, with a couple of exceptions. If Leovold's the only creature in play, you can't misdirect a Swords to Plowshares. But because Lightning Bolt, it's funny, because Lightning Bolt says any target, it's, a, yep. <laughs> it's a, something that has changed over the years of magic. And so for you old timers, you'll remember the fact that Lightning Bolt didn't always work this way. But now, 
even if Leovold is the only creature in play, you can just redirect their lightning bolt targeting Leovold right back to their face if you want. <laughs> but the extra damage is not really the point. The The point is, is that it's omni-useful at getting rid of a lightning bolt, too. How does, how does Sylvan Library work with uh, an opposing Narset, by the way? Not well. That's the, the short answer. I mean, Sylvan Library's effect is still drawing cards. And so... You, you basically don't want to utilize its effect if your opponent has Narset in play. It's, it triggers at the beginning of your draw step, and for those of you who know the details here, that means that it happens after you've drawn your one card for the turn. Right. And so you draw for the turn, and then the Sylvan Library trigger goes on the stack, and it's, it's, the effect is optional. It says you may draw two cards. If you choose to do so, and your opponent has Narset in play, you will draw no cards, and then you'll be forced to put back or pay for life for the one card you've drawn that turn. So you, Jeez. You, I know. So you get the worst of all possible worlds yeah. if you choose to use the Sylvan trigger. So I don't recommend it. Wasn't there a period, maybe in the early 2000s, I seem to have a strong recollection of this, uh, but I could be misremembering the details, where the draw actually went on the stack. The, the, the regular draw turn was a trigger that went on the stack. Yes. And so you could stack your draw for the natural draw, and then then Sylvan occurred, so the Sylvan would resolve would resolve first. Well, I don't remember the exact sequence you're talking about, but the short answer is yes. There was a time period during which you could res- respond to the draw effect going on the stack for the turn. That was done away with for simplicity's sake, and you could still get the, the same functional effect just by um, doing things during your opponent's upkeep. I remember that created some confusion with Black Vise in the rack at the time. It created, yeah, think- a lot of confusion, yes. <laughs> and Sylvan Library obviously is a poster child for confusion because of all the different <laughs> yep. rulings and printings that it's gone through. And it's the fact an that it, operationally broken card. Yeah, it still is. We won't get into that. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to talk about that. But for any of you who don't understand why that is, just go lo- go ask your friendly neighborhood judge why Sylvan Library doesn't actually work in the, the game Magic the Gathering <laughs> and why there are <laughs> special paper, floor rules for it. Yeah, in paper, that yeah. is. And if you'd like a trip down memory lane, just go into Scryfall or your favorite search engine and look up all the past printings of Sylvan Library. And just consider oh, all God. the different ways the card has been worded and printed over that's, the years. Isn't there one that has a zero mana activation? <laughs> that's, that's my favorite one. You're right. <laughs> yes. The fifth edition version fifth edition. of Sylvan Library, its effect is an activated ability that starts with oh zero God. colon. What a mess. I know. The card is a, a, a total debacle. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there's there's a number of cards that are historically problematic over the course of the game, Time Vault and, and many, many others, right? Sylvan Library holds a special place, though, in the number of different ways that its ability has been implemented and how it still actually does not work. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. It's, it's, it's one of the few cards that just flat out does not work. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing that's funny about Sylvan Library is that, I mean, in, in the fifth edition version is, like, why are some cards in, like, why did magic progress? Like, why did magic regress, like, until fifth, ed- until sixth edition, you know? I'm not sure which um, definition of regression you're, you're really referring to, but there were just a lot of different takes on what made the game easier to understand or more functional by different people and, and different points in time. It's a fantastic well, history you, lesson. Let me give you just a quick example. So the, the, the first three rule sets are first edition, third edition, and fourth edition. And then, of course, fifth edition. There was no, se- no second edition rule set. 
So first edition is the alpha rule book. Mm-hmm. Third edition is revised. And the revised revised for, uh, edition introduced LIFO <laughs> for, all fast, for all fast effects. Mm-hmm. Very simple, very elegant, very intuitive. All fast effects, meaning all activated abilities and all instants and interrupts, are handled LIFO. Very simple rule, right? I mean, I, I obviously interrupts are handled a little bit differently. But then in fifth edition, they introduced the batch. <laughs> uh, sorry, fourth edition. Fourth edition, they introduced batches, and then fifth edition, they complicated batches even further. So it's like instead of an, an evolutionary, an evolution towards like a higher ideal, it was a re- an evol- a backwards evolution towards more complexity and nonsense. In my yeah. opinion, I my opinion of in hindsight is that there are a lot of people who were very interested in I- implementing and making practicing the the vision of Richard Garfield. And the notion of what an interrupt was, I think, was pretty powerfully influential on people who were trying batches. to come up with batches. People who were trying to come up with systems that preserved the the specialness of interrupts and the way that responding to a spell was not, by Richard Garfield's original conception, was not intended to be as simple as it is today. And True. It's arguable why that was. I genuinely don't know. But for whatever reason, he made responding to spells and abilities far more complex than it needed to be. And today's system shows that. I, I don't know exactly where people get that because the, the alpha rules could not be simpler. I mean, when it comes to resolving, resolving spells, there's simply one rule. Spells <laughs> resolve simultaneously. And there's two exceptions. Interrupts, interrupts resolve before everything else. And for spells that are played around this at the same time, Whoever played the last, spe- the, the most recent spell decides the order of resolution. Yeah, and that's, it could not be simpler. Well, it's you know, simpler, but it doesn't well, work. It turns well, magic into a dexterity game. Who can ever get the card out of their hand faster <laughs> gets to decide. Which is which is why Lifo is so elegant. <laughs> yeah, but okay, let's, let's get off this aside. <laughs> Absolutely. So I just like to bring things around and say congratulations to Joe Brennan. I, I yes. really enjoy his bug list. It's inspiring, and I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking at it going forward there is a fantastic picture of joe if you haven't seen it already go to a different joe joe dyer's vintage 101 article on mtg goldfish his uh, his article series is called one of vintage 101 his u.s eternal weekend north america vintage champs write-up is very uh, deep and good and at one point he has a brief interview with joe in this great picture of him holding the mox jet painting or the you know the, the card rendering in its frame with a, an elk picture over the art and some tape and a big x over the text box depicting the mox jet having been turned into an elk by oko which is <laughs> obviously a bit of a meme at this point for the community and well established but it just contributes to this point in time and the zeitgeist of this year's particular champs how cool yeah i want i want to also echo that and extend congratulations to joe could not i mean could not be happier to have Joe as the champion this year. Uh, just a fantastic ambassador for the format. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the fact that he's a dedicated paper player. And despite you know all the um, emphasis on MTGO that a paper player won it through tech and through uh, dedication to his craft. So uh, you know he he's been a Xerox player for a long time, but he's always felt more like a, a bug player. You know what I mean? <laughs> he really has. And so this is a this is a very fitting capstone you know, trophy for him and, and flag and feather in his cap. Yeah. So congratulations. And if any of you have never met Joe and happen to find yourself at one of the kind of tournaments that he goes to, for example, like NYSE or something similar, 
I would say track him down and, and shake his hand and say congratulations. He's uh, incredibly great to talk to is Joe. All right. So Steve, let's transition from the the results set here to our experiences and a little bit about the the narrative of this year's champs. I definitely want to touch on Oko. I definitely want to touch on Narset, but we can begin anywhere you'd like. Why don't you begin talking about what you decided to play, Kevin, and how your tournament went? Yeah. Well, I've already alluded to it. I played the Rug Xerox list. I did not have much time thanks to work and other life events. I- Which, by the way, you, you, I think you were really excited about. You really liked when we reviewed Ren. Yeah. It was a card you were really excited about. Yes. So it was a good, a good fit for you. Yeah. And when I saw Matt Murray's uh, win with it, I thought, okay... This deck is good. It's obviously uh, equipped to fight the format. And you're right, Steve. It has a lot of things I really liked about it. I mean, I love playing Xerox, and I really like the card Renin 6. And so I was glad to see it do well in Matt's hands and immediately was drawn to the, the way he had designed the deck. So Jeremy Pinter, who was in the top eight, ended up in fifth place, was in first place after the Swiss. Jeremy and I live in the same town. We live just a couple minutes apart, in fact, and we, we tend to go to uh, local tournaments together. Jeremy and I both chose the deck, and we strategized on its design a little bit and its play a little bit on the, on the lead up to the event. So my list is not especially different from Jeremy's. Uh, the only difference, I think, was that in the main deck, he cut... In order to make room for a main deck Snapcaster Mage, he cut a Preordain, and I cut a Lightning Bolt. That was basically the only difference that I can think of. There was one other difference in our main, is I didn't play with Mystical Tutor in favor of um, a, a slightly different uh, counterspell configuration, because I, I played a Spell Pierce. So anyway, those two differences, and we had almost the same sideboard except our anti-dredge tech. I played, oh wait. Sorry, not our anti-dredge tech, our anti-shop tech. Basically, I played another Shattering Spree in the sideboard, whereas Jeremy played a Braid. So there's not many differences. We were 72 or 73 cards the same. I really enjoyed the way the deck played. It. Uh, I didn't have a lot of preparation with the deck in advance for the reasons I already stated, so I, I didn't do very well. But there's a key reason that I didn't do very well, which is the combination of my preparation and the fact that the deck at least the way I had it configured, had a pretty weak matchup against Oath. And not for lack of trying, but I faced Oath three times in the Swiss and and only went one and two against it. It's not an awful, awful matchup, but I would describe it as maybe 60-40 in their favor. And a couple of tweaks to the design of the deck would help that, but there were things that I didn't anticipate. For the reasons we already stated, I had I did not expect there to be as much Oath as there was and I also didn't have any experience with piloting the rug walkers versus rug oath intricacies of the matchup. And so there were just a couple of things that I didn't anticipate, which made the matchup even worse. Hmm. Overall, what though, you- to your point, I really like this deck and, and I, it's going to inform my design in the, the new vintage going forward. What do you think is its strongest matchup? Uh, wow, that's an interesting question. I don't actually know the answer to that. The strongest matchup, it, to my mind, felt like it was Jeskai. 
it felt like that's a good thing to feel. Yes, <laughs> that's a really good. I, thing. That's one of the things I really liked about it. Is for my for my part, I really felt like I was well positioned against Jeskai. All my cards felt highly relevant. Um, it felt like the Planeswalker configuration was hard for them to answer. Ren and Six, for example, is just it. It's just really challenging for them to address because it's not hit by the standard players that they would have to fight it. Pyroblast, Lightning Bolt, etc. And put that in combination with the fact that Oko was still bursting onto the scene. A lot of players didn't have experience playing against Oko and also didn't have an appreciation for it, which, again, is one of my narratives for this whole event, I think. And so a combination of factors meant I felt really good playing against other blue decks. And my results against them on the weekend bore that out. I only lost once to another Xeroxy type deck, and that that involved uh, like Lotus Mentor on their part. So which Rug still has no answer to effectively. So anyway, the deck felt good. I, I enjoyed playing against basically everything I played against. I think with a bit more practice, I would have done all, a little bit better against Oath, but I don't think that matchup can be pushed much higher than, I don't know, 55%er because the deck... Is that the worst matchup? What's the worst matchup? Then? Oh, the worst matchup has got to be Survival. This deck... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've got cards that are relevant. Like, I've got Leyline of the Void. I've got some Nature's Claims. Like, I can win that matchup, sure. But it felt like a 30-70 kind of matchup. I just, there's so little you can do when you don't have exactly a sideboard card against them. It's kind of like, um, it's like, you know, it feels like fighting Dredge, but you have even fewer outs. Like, because you can get an anti-graveyard type draw, like a, a ley line draw, and their survival can still defeat that, right? Right. And you can get an anti-survival draw, like with a, a Pithing Needle, for example. And no, their bizarre, their, yeah, their bizarre draw board. still beats it. So. Yeah, I think this deck is inherently a dog against survival in a very, very bad way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's I love I love the kind of array of advantages and disadvantages that are situated across the vintage metagame right now. Agreed. In terms of like it's 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 cool. It's fun to think about. Um, what would you have changed if you could have done it differently? Well, I would have had a little bit more gasoline against Oath of Druids. So Me my, too. Yeah. yeah. My build only had one nature's claim in the sideboard. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. And how many how many snaps, by the way? Just one. And so Still. I legitimately had only one card that removed the card Gee. Oath of Druids from play. Even a mystical tutor would have helped. Well, and yeah. I had and I had cut that in favor of a spell <laughs> pierce, which Ooh, ostensibly interacts a- with Oath of Druids, of course. So you should have not- asked me about this. I would have persuaded <laughs> you to go the other way. No, I, I know that you're far more in favor of Mystical Tutor than I ever will be. But that's Especially neither here nor there. Especially restricted. Well, I hear you. I'm with you. But uh, I, I liked Spell Pierce because I wanted more early interaction for, honestly, for green enchantments. I wanted more early interaction for Oath of Druids and for Fastbond. Survival. And Fastbond, yeah. So it's not like I wasn't thinking about Oath of Druids exactly, but that one card is not enough to sway the matchup. The, the simple truth is the matchup is fundamentally weak. When you're a Tarmogoyf deck, you have inherent yeah. tactical <laughs> and strategic disadvantage against the Oath of Druids deck. There's just no two ways about it. It's uh, The decks have like 75-80% cards in common, and so when you tease all that out, if they resolve their two-mana green spell and I resolve my two-mana green spell, they win every time. And that's the situation I found myself in. I was boarding down. I only played two Goyfs, by the way, because I cut. Did, one. did you have no, Cartigers Cage in this? You don't use Cage. No, there's no Cage. Of, I'm sorry, I was yeah. not. I was wrong about the Goyfs. I had three Goyfs, but I was still boarding down at least one Goyf uh, against them. And due to variance, I ended up with Goyf in almost all my opening hands against them, post sideboard even, which was mm-hmm. 
there's a little bit of variance there, and I, I, I perhaps could have mulliganed more aggressively knowing the matchup. So uh, it's just, you're inherently disadvantaged, and you've got to work harder to win that matchup than they have to work. So at the moment, I'm not too worried about that. Like, I still consider this Rogue Walker's deck to be incredibly viable in the format, and there's multiple layers of reasons for that. One is simply that I don't think Oath is ever represented as highly anywhere as it is at Vintage Champs each year, right? So yeah. you should know the matchup and plan for it and maybe adjust the deck a little bit to account for it, but it's not going to be the second most uh, played deck in any given Vintage Challenge for a while, for example. So let's switch gears and talk about your deck selection. You had been playing Dredge a fair bit recently with some measure of success. Uh, any particular notes about how you viewed the archetype going into champs and, and what you did differently to prepare for this large, slightly different <laughs> event? Well, it was the first time I'd ever not registered Black Lotus in the Vintage Championship, so that was a weird feeling. <laughs> a feeling uh, <laughs> I've yet to have, yeah. <laughs> I, I've not. I've registered a, a shop deck before, so I've played without Ancestral. Mm-hmm. I've never played without Black Lotus. Um, now, just my basic view of Dredge is... So, my basic view of the format is that Force of Vigor was a game changer, and I wanted to play a Force of Vigor deck. All right. And I wanted to play what I thought was, you know, just structurally, in, you know, I wanted to play around Force of Vigor. So that, so play, wanting to play with Force of Vigor basically narrowed my deck selection down to Dredge, Bug, and like Survival, maybe. Right. <laughs> right. I, and after the restrictions, uh, you know, at the end of, uh, was it the end of August? I, um, tested a bunch with bug and it didn't fe- it, it felt like the kind of deck that i need i needed an enormous amount of reps with to get the metagame right mm-hmm. um and i uh i actually played in it with i also tested with just guy i played both bug and just guy in leagues and i think i was winning the leagues and i was like this is so boring i don't even want to play this anymore <laughs> like after you play with after you play you know what it kind of felt like after playing with a bunch of dredge this summer and then I top aided the the two vintage playoffs that I that, that I competed in. Dredge, it's like pl- after playing with Dredge, especially this pitch Dredge. And I I played a little bit of Dredge. I actually have a a, a league five zero uh, in March, only because I just decided to play one league with um. What was the Sphinx? Remember the Sphinx we reviewed at the beginning of the year, Kevin? <laughs> uh, the the opening hand Scry one. What is it? Sphinx, yes. Sphinx of yeah. Foresight. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I I five zero a league in March. But I decided it wasn't until we recorded our podcast when we were reviewing um, Modern Horizons that that you know as we were going through it, you kept I'm like well, you know we talked about Force of Negation, Force of Vigor, and you're like, and I asked you like what deck gets better with these, and you kept saying Dredge, and I'm like my God that sounds so good I'm gonna play this immediately, <laughs> and then I like top aided the next challenge, and then I top aided the uh, the vintage playoff, and I top aided the next vintage playoff, <laughs> and I top aided like five challenges this summer. And I played in seven. I'm like, this is this is doing pretty well. It's like, and then when I went back to play Bug and Xerox, it's like it's like playing standard after you played vintage for a while. <laughs> it's just, I'm serious. What it feels like, it's just boring. It's not exciting. the The plays are not um, high pressure, high intense plays. It's like when I when I'm playing Dredge, I love the excitement of the high pressure moment. Like, do I take route A or do I take route B? Do I like dig for force of vigor or do I uh, try and like build a hand here, like counter magic here? Or do I like put a four, four on the table and try and ride that in a tempo way, you know, like with wasteland backup or do I like, like, for example, do I 
I'm in a situation where if I can dredge up, let's say, let's say my opponent has a tabernacle, right? Yeah. I can try and, do you try and race it with Icarids? Right. Or do you try and dig for Wasteland? Like, I love that, like, every game, post-board game, you either win with dredge or you have these interesting choices that you're confronted with. And they're, they're almost exciting. They're so stimulating. It's basically addictive. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I like that. And I, and I, um, I feel like I, like, constantly getting better with dredge like i make mistakes all the time but i'm able to like think through it really crystallizes and focus like what is important what am i trying to achieve what is my opponent trying to achieve how do i over how do i overcome this obstacle what's the best route to to doing it right like i said like like you know the example of should i just dredge a bunch and try and overcome it with with icarids all the risk that that entails like if my opponent top decks a rav trap i'm dead or do I dig for one of my wastelands, you know, and I had five wastelands in this event to try and answer it, uh, even though I don't have one in hand? And do I, like, if I have two cards in hand, do I activate it bizarre? Or do I wait until I get three cards in hand? Right. Right. It's like, right. like constantly every game has fascinating decisions that I feel like weren't part of the dredge archetype, like maybe a couple of years ago. But with all these pitch cards and all these decisions now, it becomes much more interesting. Um, what do you unmask? Do you take like the hate card if you and try and go with your uh, hollow ones, or do you, you know? No, do you take the draw card and go with hollow one plan, or do you take the the hate card and you know and try and go the dredge plan? Mm-hmm. It's just it's so like there's one the the one rule I've realized there's no rule. Every <laughs> decision is like entirely context depends de- sensitive now, and things that I thought were impossibilities. With dredge, like that you would never do that. I found scenarios where you do that. And I'm not just talking about like the obvious things where, like, for example, uh, you all, you never, uh, you never keep a hand without bizarre. Well, I've found plenty of hands that you keep without bizarre. Yeah. Like, for example, in the mirror, if you have uh, a ley line of the void, a force of will, an unmask and a wasteland, you can easily keep that hand, you know, in a dredger, easily keep that hand and, and win. And in fact, I win post board games like that all the time. Or, um, um, you know, uh, do you, would you, if, if you could play three, and this actually came up in the top eight, if you could play three hollow ones and race that way, would you, or should you, should you flashback cobalt therapies, right? Because hitting their hand is more important than winning in two turns, um, trying to win in two turns. So there's all different kinds of scenarios where like counterintuitive things come up. Um, the big mistake I made in this tournament (laughs) was, was that I did underestimated oath. And had I known that, I would have played with uh, Leyline of Sanctities in my sideboard. I just didn't think Oath was going to be a player. I thought it was like a fluke. Like, and I just ignored it. I totally underestimated it. I lost to Oath. It was my first loss. And it was a situation where um, I had complete control of the game. I had dominated the game. At the last possible turn, he top-decked Oath um, after I had wastelanded him, uh, eviscerated his entire hand, um, had, you know, had him down to like, I don't remember what it was, 10 or so, um, you know, taken out all his, killed all his planeswalkers, everything I could possibly do. Yeah. Um, even destroyed oaths. And then he, I even destroyed oaths and he top decked an oath, right? Like, you know, the last possible turn and then one more turn to activate. Well, I sent him to like one or two and he activated, he, he oathed up the, uh, moat creature. Yeah. Um, and I just lost. I'm, th- you know, it was very frustrating. And then my, uh, my other, lo- my other two, I went six and three. My other loss was against survival 
but it wasn't against survival. I actually crushed survival. What happened was I mulliganed to, to one uh, on, on a game three. Oh. And, y- you know, th- like, you're not supposed to mulligan to one or zero. Basically, I mulliganed to zero, right? It was a mulligan to oblivion. I don't mind mulliganing to oblivion. I don't even mind doing it in game one. The only game I ask not to mulligan to oblivion is game three. So I got caught by variance against survival, <laughs> and I um, I lost to my third loss was against Jeskai, where I made a critical miscue, where I misread the situation and uh, overextended, and then got punished. Um, he, I think he had like nine anti dredge cards, um, but I still overextend just just a little bit in a, in a critical mistake. And I'd also mulligan to four, by the way, in that game three against Je- Xerox. But I really think my entire tournament would have gone totally differently had I had Leyline of Sanctity. Um, sure, sure. You know, it would have just completely set me on a different trajectory. And, you know, because I started out really strong. I think it might have been even 4-0 and or 3-1. and And then I lost to Oath. No, Oath was my first loss. So, I, so, so it, was, it was frustrating. But, um, you know, I, I, look, I knew that I wasn't going to wipe out with, with Dredge because it was just, it just has such an inherently high win percentage. Um but I just didn't quite get, and my tech was good. Like the wastelands were fantastic for the metagame, yeah, because they really were good against all the tabernacles. You know, they're good. They're really good as a tempo play in game threes on the play against Xerox. Xerox, the decks that just run very few Moxen, they can't explode. You know, they can't. They, if they can get to their second mana to cast Containment Priest or the third mana to cast their Dak, you can just win with Hollow One with the wastelands. So. Yeah, the, the wastelands were awesome, and and they just totally owned the mirror. And I beat I beat two uh, DPS decks primarily because of wasteland, actually, because neither opponent saw it coming. And then I just I even beat an opponent who had necropotence with wastelands, nice. which was pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For those of you who are used to have encoded dredge as a deck that you can just yeah you know, fetch with impunity against, uh, you need to you need to re-encode that. <laughs> Well, the key thing that that led me to Wasteland was I kept thinking, how can I maximally interact with my opponent even after I like mulligan to five, yeah. mulligan to six? And you know, you really want to have a larger hand so you can. You re- I want to be able to interact with at least two disruption cards from turn one. You know, from from go, mm-hmm. I want to have at least two disruption cards at the immediate immediately because I really want to be an interactive game. And you know, obviously. Force of Will, Unmask, both are two cards. Force of Negation, which I ran, are both two two for ones. Um, you know, Cabal Therapy requires it to be in the graveyard. Um, Mental Misstep is restricted. Force of Vigor is a two, you know, can be a two for two, so, but often two for one. Um, the only card that really is one for one is besides Misstep, you know, and it, without having to do a lot of work at, up front is Wasteland. So, mm-hmm. and it and it has a, it has so many different roles. It can provide a tempo advantage when you've got hollow ones. It can cut a player off of white or red or or black. It can stop the tabernacle. It can stop the um, glacial chasm. Yeah. And and it just it also is so good against shops because a single sphere doesn't stop you. So you can then use the wasteland to cast force of vigor and then use the wasteland to then take out their factory or whatever. Um, and it's it totally owns the mirror. And I spent the week in Hawaii before Vintage Champs. I probably won't do that again because <laughs> I was just obsessing about like my sideboard. <laughs> you know, I was like sit, swimming in the ocean, you know, like Eric Virgo and the Appalachian Trail, obsessing <laughs> about <laughs> obsessing about our scenario episode last year. Yeah. Um, no, I, I kid. But um, 
But that really, you know, I really wanted to think about the interactions between Leyline and Wasteland. It's so powerful, Kevin, because if your opponent is playing Dredge and they don't immediately have Force of Vigor and a green card, and you open with Leyline and they play Bazaar, and then you waste their Bazaar, mm-hmm. they may never get back in the game. Yeah. So, so Wasteland and, and Leyline are tremendously powerful. Like I said, I just wish I had played Leyline of Sanctity. And then when I got back, you know, I actually 5-0'd a league and then 4-1'd two other leagues. So I'm, uh, you know, with this configuration. So I'm really happy with it. I'm excited though to play some other decks, um, in the post restriction environment. Mm-hmm. But, um, Dredge is just like, I don't know. It's just, like I said, the, the closest analogy is it's like, like playing a vintage combo deck and then being asked to play some dirtily standard deck. It's just <laughs> boring by comparison. And the Xerox decks, which, you know, I obviously adore, wrote a book on, they just are so tedious. And you have to, it's, they're so excruciating <laughs> to kind of grind out, you know what I mean? This, this, eke out the slightest win. Um, just dredge is just so much more. It brings, it brings into hyper focus, like the critical turn, the critical decision. And I, I have not played a match yet in the last seven or eight months with the, I've been playing Dredge. Not a single match have I lost where I felt like if I didn't have a different configuration of a deck or sideboard, or I didn't make a different choice, I, I didn't have a possibility of winning, which yeah. is a really great feeling a good in point. a format that has as much variance as vintage. Well, congratulations on your continued success with the archetype. I'm, well, I'm six, glad six to hear. Well, six and three is top sixty-four. It wasn't where I wanted to land, but <laughs> no, it's not. But, but but still, I mean, your your performance outside of champs too is is been really strong. Thank you, Kevin. So I suggest that we move on and talk about our assessment of what the the real narrative of this event was. And when I say real, I'm not trying to be dismissive. Like the things we've talked about, the construction yeah. of the metagame, the top eight, those are real narratives. But how, how we're going to encode yeah how we're going to yeah. encode this event throughout history L- well, let me give you the five takeaways in my opinion um so so the first thing that that I'll uh, my first takeaway is that this the metagame was importantly shaped in re- in ways that are were so usually the this metagame generally reflects the vintage challenges that precede it but there was a surge a particular kind of surge in, in, in say three archetypes that was deeply reflected in, in the metagame and ultimately top eight of this event. Yeah. And th- that was, of course, Oko Oath, which surged in terms of the metagame, did not make top eight. The rug, I think you said called the Chubby Rain Rug Xerox deck. Yep. And then the PO, o- Justin Gennari's PO Oko Oath. Yep. Those three decks were all prominently featured. So this, I'd say, was probably the vintage championship that had the closest let's call it like relation as a byproduct of recent you know changes to the vintage metagame on in online you know like like this is i'm thinking back yeah there like when montolio won the vintage championship yes he had been playing his decks and the challenges but like there was more a sense of like that that was the breakout for the steel overseer deck where he he and shay played in the finals you know what i mean yeah or like um you know certainly the 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 various treasure cruise decks version of Xerox had surged and done well, but there's usually like a surprise winner. Um, I feel like th- this metagame and the key decks were really defined primarily. The, my first takeaway was by very recent, like basically immediately preceding, <laughs> uh, you know, events in the vintage metagame. Yeah. Uh, online. The second 
The second takeaway I would say is that, um, is that, um, that the, the one deck that could re, well, I'll say this, that, that, that the, the PO is, is both a deck that in the best hands of the best players, um, and also in a paper environment, it's just always going to do really, really well. And so it, the, the, the rumors of its devo- demise were, were greatly exaggerated. <laughs> and I think PO was just like enormously powerful. And it's like, you were, you were working with your friend Jeremy, uh, like, how can you prepare for this? On some level, there's just nothing you can prepare for. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, I didn't watch the match, but I assume it was just he it wasn't the cards. I mean, it wasn't his decisions, it was the cards. Well, meaning Jeremy's decisions. You're talking about Jeremy's uh loss match to, against, to Justin to Justin in the yeah. top eight. Well, there was there was there were certainly elements of that. Yes. The the one of the the pivotal basically the final turn, although not technically the final turn, but the pivotal turn where Justin was forced to uh basically win or go home, because it was game three, the um he started at a severe disadvantage throughout the turn. He was low on resources and he had like a sensei's divining top and he just strung together this yeah. impressive the tightest, narrowest, yeah. yeah. This impressive sequence of cards and mana that involved tinkering for uh, a bolus's citadel at a relatively low life total. Low life. Right? Yeah. yeah. And Finding maybe top and then And then going he to found demonic tutor. Like yeah. He went very yeah. low on life to get there, but he, he threaded the needle and to your point it it's not like jeremy didn't uh put him under pressure and you know he put him behind the eight ball and forced him to have that kind just of got overpowered yeah that yeah, kind of narrow sequence but it, but justin's yeah the po deck was was just the more powerful deck in in that moment and in that matchup Op- optimally piloted right and yeah just kind of skated right along um so i the third thing though i would say is that you know both and this is kind of the opposite of the first takeaway which is that you know, the first takeaway is we saw a lot of the, the Magic Online environment infiltrated the paper tournament in a really big way. But the opposite was that you had a paper player win the event with a deck that basically hadn't, you know, done very well since the restrictions, which was yeah. Bug. Yeah. And he, But what happened was he solved the metagame. And it wasn't an, a surprising solution because we'd seen Bug be the solution to the metagame before. But right. what made it surprising was was that he found the exact configuration of cards you needed to to bring bug above Xerox or at least compete with Xerox, right? Yeah, yeah. And th- and then he that that kind of solved things. So I think that was really significant. Um, the other thing I would say is I think that the the one the fourth takeaway is that fast bond is not the menace that some feared, <laughs> and it's it's kind of just an interesting thing for an exciting toy for people to play with. Um, without actually, you know, breaking the, you know, breaking vintage in half. Um, and to your I point think- earlier, it actually provides uh, an unexpected budget option. That is to say, unexpected in its scale. That is pretty satisfying and awesome. Definitely, I think those those are probably my main takeaways. I feel like I had a few more in mind that I've slipped my mind, but I think I think this is an interesting convergence of you know the ways in which the metagame evolves and the ways in which metagames can be solved. Um, and I think that there's no question that, that the, um, I mean, in my opinion, you know, the, a lot of players, the best players were writing on shops. And I, I just think that we finally hit the critical mass of answers for shops. We finally got, when you add it all together, when you finally look at Force of Vigor and Collector's Oof and some of these other things, I think we finally are able in the position to keep shop in check, which is a nice, kind of a nice feeling for the format. Well, um, and the I, fact I, I, that, 
the fact that the the best performing players and decks at the top of the room were rug uh speaks to yes. that right red and green <laughs> yeah. have the best answers to shops right now in vintage and when you put them together then you can you, you can have a strong win percentage against shops and these rug decks do true yeah true i just i feel like what i'm saying is i feel like the era of shop I don't want to eat my words next year. Yeah. But I feel like the era of shops just feeling really oppressive. I feel like that's over. I, I think it's going to be hard for shops to really dominate again. I don't know. Uh, it, it's worth putting things in perspective in that sense, just because the shop's dominance was bolstered by repeated new printings, right? Year True. over year over again. year. <laughs> Revoker and Hangerback Walker and Ballista and on and on. Like, the the arc the the con, the constant sorry the configuration of the archetype just became centered around new cards right and we've had to walk that back a bit and the most recent new cards have also been restricted right <laughs> Karn and Mystic Forge so that pattern hasn't changed so much as we finally had to restrict the new cards as opposed to some older cards right it's like the pa- well, yeah, the pattern but- in the past was like Hangerback Walker and Walking Ballista got Chalice and Lodestone restricted, right? True. Which is True. fundamentally different than Karn and Mystic Forge got Karn and Mystic Forge restricted, right? Yeah. So the pattern has been different this year, but I, I do think it's pretty dangerous to say that that era is quote-unquote over just because we could get a spoiled card tomorrow for the next set that just makes Shops the best deck in the format again easily, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, like, I don't know. We don't need to speculate. You know the kind of cards well, by now that do that. Mana disruption, well, activated right. ability disruption, these it's, kind of things are have powerful effects, and the simple truth is another sphere is all it would take, right? Another revoker variant is all it would take to shut off all these Planeswalker shenanigans we're currently experiencing. It's true, but I think I think that Force of Vigor is, an, is a new kind of answer. Well, that's true. You know, that, that's absolutely that, fair. Yep. So... Yeah, that's a good point. That that does put a ceiling on the way typical shop cards can dominate. I agree with you there. Yeah, that's all. That's the only point I was making. That's yeah. Well, I'd like to add just a couple of additional stories to yours. Uh, one of which is related to some things you observed, but it's Oko, right? Oko <laughs> being uh, both a brand new printing and enigmatic card. I think, especially in the vintage context. And having, as you alluded to, kind of some breakout performances right before the event. We're talking days and weeks before the event. That those things conspired to create both what amounts to, I would argue, three new archetypes. Like interesting. The, yeah. the Oko Oath list is meaningfully yeah. different than any prior Oath list in the way it plays and the way it's constructed. The Rug Planeswalker deck is just didn't exist before. And it's a combination of Oko and Ren and Six combined with the other good rug walkers, obviously, combined mixed with some some clever deck design. Similarly, the rug PO list, again, not really possible without Oko because of the role that that card plays in that deck. And so you saw this tournament, if you were to if you were to aggregate rug decks, which is not a not a great metric, don't get me wrong, but if you were, that's a huge portion of this metagame, right? If you were to take the rug Xerox, the rug PO, and the rug Oath decks and put them together, they would be a huge portion of this metagame. Yeah. So, so actually, Ryan Eberhardt did do. I don't know what I did with it now, but he did have uh, some of those decks, some of those cards. He had the specific percentage of Oko in the metagame. Yeah, he he did that. He broke out Oko as seventy-one players, which is twenty-three point four percent. That's incredible. That actually. is a huge number for. F- 
for 300 play that's that's huge yeah, yeah to have 23 there's no way that if you and i had been asked that question going no in way. hey what portion of the metagame will be playing oko we, i would have we said would have been three three to five maybe percent. at most yeah, yeah. 23 percent that's, that's double the shops <laughs> yeah that's more than all of the taxing decks grouped together combining eldrazi and shops that's incredible there's no way anyone would have predicted that Oath would, uh, that Oko would outnumber uh, Sphere decks. That truly is incredible. Yeah. And on top of all that, there were five Oko decks in the top eight. There were fully eight copies of Oko in the top eight of this event. And, you know, the, the blue decks averaged one copy of Oko <laughs> each. That's incredible. There's no way we would have predicted anywhere near that. I would have said that there's a, an outside chance that one Oko made top eight, right, as a role player right. in some other decks, to have five decks and representing fully three different archetypes, bug, rugs, rug walkers, and rug outcome. That's incredible. It really is. No other card has burst onto the scene in quite this way, and especially not across different archetypes this way. But there's something that overshadows Oko, and that's Narset. For as much Oko as there was in this top eight, there was three times as much Ars Narset. <laughs> it, it, I mean, in it this wasn't top three eight, three times as much. There was, was in many metrics. That averaged two point three seven five copies per deck in this top eight. If you look oh, you're at just talking about the top eight. I was talking about the metagame. Well, yeah. It, well, it okay. It also was three times the Oko in the metagame at large. But no, the, I looked at so Ryan Eberhardt's data showed that if I recall correctly. Narset was about f- over f- about fifty some percent of the overall field. Yeah, there so were, that's only double. There were four hundred and twenty three copies of Narsets in deck lists. Wow! And there were one hundred and thirty six copies of Oko. Okay, so you're yeah. I'm. I was just talking about yeah. In so depending decks, on the metric, but, yes, it was about three times as much. But let me continue with the top eight of the blue decks in the top eight. The average copies of Narset was two point seven. The median was three. Right. So we're talking about. If you're playing a blue deck and you're making top eight at this event, you're playing three copies of Narset pretty uniformly. It's a given. Yeah. Yeah. That is another special kind of dominance, right? And especially for a card printed this year. So we got two Planeswalkers printed this year that just dominated this event and this top eight. And that is, that's just, that's incredibly impressive. And it's, it's, I think it's one of the ways we're going to encode this event going forward in the future is, hey, oh, that was the year that Oko broke out, right? Oh, and that was the last time you were allowed to play four Narsets and everyone played three Narsets in all their blue decks, you know? <laughs> like, we're going to look back as, as, can you believe they let us play four Narsets? <laughs> um, well, I mean, look, if Karn wasn't restricted, if some of those other cards weren't restricted, Narset wouldn't be nearly as salient. Granted, so absolutely. we have to, yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of <laughs> there's been a lot of moment to moment shifts in what is the best card and the best deck in this format this year, which is one of the overall narratives of the year, of course. 423 copies of Narset's pretty impressive, but I actually think 136 copies of Oko is more surprising more, to me. Yeah, yeah, more surprising. Yeah. They're both impressive stats. Agreed. Both impressive figures. So, let's move on then and talk about how those factors influenced the Banderist announcement just yesterday. So, Steve, it's no surprise that yesterday, Narset Parter of Veils was restricted in Vintage. We should do what we normally do, which is read the explanation for the restriction that was provided by Ian Duke. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. it's it's not very long this time so i think we can read the whole thing in in uh in totality and then discuss it right okay so i will quote ian from his article yesterday and this is just the vintage paragraph i'm not going to read the whole thing there was a lot more action a lot more fireworks across different formats following up on the recent changes to the restricted list and the results of eternal weekend north america 2019 we're making one additional change in the context of the fast mana and efficient card draw available in Vintage, Narset Parter Avails is contributing to one-sided games at a higher degree than is healthy. In order to reduce the frequency at which an early Narset Parter Avails static ability soft locks the opposing player out of the game, Narset is restricted. Pretty succinct, right? There's only, yeah. what, three sentences here? and Yeah, and the, the last two are the only... Uh, sorry, the no, there's... Yeah, the last two are the only ones that are really relevant yes. to analysis. Right. The first one is just some some context setting or a brief history lesson. Yeah, so, so <laughs> there's not much material. There's not much meat for us to, to grab onto here. So I think we can highlight a couple of key phrases that draw my eye, and I think you'll probably agree. So starting with the second sentence, Ian sets some context and uses specifically the word context to put Narset in the vintage spectrum, which is... In the context of fast mana and efficient card draw, so he sets that context that's specific to yeah. vintage. He says that Narset is contributing to, and the key phrase here is one-sided games. Right. And then the the more general phrase at a higher degree than is healthy. Yeah, and yeah, and and the second sentence. So the, to me, the key words and they're close closely related are one-sided games mm-hmm. and soft locks. Yes. Because I think that they're referring to the same idea there. Yes. Um, and so it's, it's clear that, that the frequency with which Narset is seeing play is part of why it's restricted. Because if it just contributed to high, to one-sided games, um, let's say infrequently, because it wasn't ubiquitous, then it wouldn't be, which, which is really the odd thing that's missing here, right? I mean, it, it's not, it's, look, look, if, if Narset contributed to one-sided games all the time, Mm -hmm. not, not, just some of the time it's played, but it was almost never played, then it clearly wouldn't be restricted. So it's it. what's really missing here is some note, notation, or, or at least acknowledgement, rather, that, um, that, that Narset is super heavily played. I mean, the fact that it was in seven of the top eight decks, the fact that it was in 55% of the metagame, those, both of those, to me, are more important than the fact that it softlocks the opponent. In fact, it's the predicate for the effect, right? That then, yeah. then makes it so so nefarious. So, um, I, I I just think it's odd that it's emphasizing not the most important point in my opinion, which is the it's, it's pure dominance, right? That like it's basically become dig through time, and that all the blue decks run it. Yeah, which is fine. I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable precedent for restriction. I know you weren't happy with it, and I'm ambivalent. Yeah. but maybe you can say why you were less than happy with that. I am simply of the opinion that the format had more or less adapted to Narset. Decks that were, aside from Paradoxical Outcome, but even even then, but decks that were hinged upon drawing a lot of cards, like the Xerox decks, had evolved to include more main deck answers than your opponent would have Narsets, right? And like that's why, part of the reason, I should say, why Dreadhorde Arcanist, for example, is so omnipresent in the format is it's a card advantage source that doesn't necessitate drawing, and it also has inherent synergy with trying to answer your opponent's Narset, for example. And that's why the blue deck's deck construction heavily features Pyroblast and Lightning Bolts these days. It's why 
red is has has shifted yeah back into prominence as the secondary color in the format and so these kind of things tend not to bother me also anecdotally i, I was playing the rug walkers deck all weekend and, and the number of times granted my sample size is only what 16 rounds or something that i played my sample size tells me that there was only maybe one game where either my opponent or i got really locked out with narset like couldn't couldn't compete because narset was in play plenty of other times narset was very interactive in the format it's part of the reason why the creature configurations people have selected are there it's part of the reason why planeswalkers are there it's part of the value of renin six for example is to to clear out an opposing narset so i'm of the opinion that the metagame was still reacting and i observed that the dramatic shift in deck construction and, and the way decks were built and the, the over-representation of Rug in the event, for example, points to the fact that Narset hadn't, hadn't coalesced the metagame. It just became a valuable tool for multiple, multiple lists. And so... So what makes it different than Preordain? Or what makes it different than, you know, f- Force of Will? Yeah. Is that what you're that's, saying? That's kind of... It's similar to what I'm getting at. It's just that it, 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 hadn't, it hasn't produced a dominant deck... It hasn't right. necessarily. It's the opposite. It's it's everywhere. Yeah, and it, uh, and the the anecdotal evidence that players are soft locked is not my summation of yeah. the the way games play out. Yeah, that actually is the I think the critical difference between Dig Through Time and Narset is that Dig Through Time may have been used by a bunch of blue decks, but it was actually abused by the Xerox deck. Yeah, you see the difference there. I do absolutely. And Narset is just kind of equally abused by all the blue decks, not yeah. just used. It's not like, I mean, if anything, like the PO decks with the draw sevens maybe make better use of it because it's so obnoxious to, to PO your opponent, you know, I mean, to, uh, to draw seven your opponent when you have Narset in play. Yeah. And interestingly, that particular very egregious play pattern is not referenced here, right? No. The, the, the usage of the phrase soft, uh, one-sided games could, could allude to that, but then they doubled down with, Ian doubled down with the phrase soft lock. And soft lock has a pretty strong cultural connotation of something that is prolonged, <laughs> right? Over the course of two or more turns, your opponent can't contribute to the game because Narset's in play. Well, that's, that is not the most egregious use of Narset in my experience. That, that windfall, uh, time twister, wheel of fortune interaction is, is really the pinnacle. And we've seen a diminishment, too, of the combination of Narset and Dakfaden. There was some some early lists that had like three of each and were really trying to get your opponent under the Narset Dakfaden soft lock, but that has fallen out of the out, out of favor and is no longer the way these decks are trying to to guide the game. That's just kind of a nice benefit if you happen to have be playing with both of those cards. I just don't share the the doom and gloom about Narset's effect on individual games at this point. I think the metagame is is still and has been in the in the process of reacting to it. But I know that not everyone shares my opinion. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, I, so so let's just let's pivot then to what what do you think this means in terms of its significance for the metagame, and what do you think will be the metagame effects? Well, basically, every blue deck will include a Narset now, which uh, is not really a change, and most of the blue decks will be cutting two Narsets, right? But the big winner here is PO. Right, modern PO has been strongly designed around fighting Narset for the last since her printing. Basically, mm-hmm. it contributed strongly to the notion that PO uh, was more or less dead. Right, which we discussed already in this show. Now, in my opinion, the presumptive result here is that PO needs to not change very much. You still need to be right. able to answer your opponent's Narset, 
but you don't need to assume that your opponent has Narset in the average blue matchup well, now. <laughs> Right, so what does that mean in terms of your deck design? I mean, looking at Justin Frank's deck, it's not like he had any main deck answers besides chain and, and repeal, repeal, which yeah. is well. Know, so I the, his his victory conditions uh, are a nod to Narset, though Monastery Mentor. You don't need to explain, but Tinker for Bolas's Citadel is a way to draw many many cards around Narset. Yeah, right. Granted that you lose the um, Sensei's Divining Top interaction, so that's important. But I do think that Tinker for Citadel is an acknowledgement of Narset. In its own way. I don't think Fair. this has a dramatic impact in PO deck construction because, th- because cards like Lavinia and Collector Oof are still all over the place. And so you still have to answer your opponent's permanence plenty. What I do think, though, is it improves the win percentage against the field for PO, which is a huge metric. There's just going to be significantly fewer games where your opponent has their Narset and you have to play around it. Now you can just overpower them like you were used to doing before Narset was popular. And so I think that's important. That's why, in my opinion, the presumptive winner here is PO and everything else has to react. Yeah. I, uh, you know, so, so one of the things I think is a winner is I think any deck that wants to have a marginal amount of draw, like a bug deck, but has to like dodge Narset, I think they, they are pretty big winners. Obviously, Xerox with its maximum amount of that. But but Xerox loses as much as it gains, I think. Like, Xerox really benefited from the ability to shut off POs, draw engine, and so on and so forth. Precisely. I, I just, I can't escape the feeling that this really isn't going to change much. No. Just isn't going to change much. That the that it's, it's <laughs> you know, PO gets better, PO gets worse, Xerox gets better, Xerox gets worse. All the blue decks that ran Narset, now they get more room to run other things. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, it, it's less of the, about the blue, the blue war. At least on that specific dimension. So I, I just don't know what the purpose of this was. I mean, is it just to make some players feel better? You know what I mean? Like the, 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 the like ostensibly, if it's not about its dominance in blue, and then it's about the gameplay effect, which is what they emphasize, right? But the gameplay effect is actually dependent upon its prevalence, right? So you won't have an unhealthy number, unhealthy number of one-sided games if it wasn't so prevalent. Yeah. So I think, I think. I don't really know if this is going to make much of a difference at all. If if players, let's say players shift to like said Teferi and Dak, you know, and and maybe another Cantrip. I mean, those cards are are they really going to be less effective in terms of leading to wins than a Narset would have been? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're just basically functional substitutes. I, I don't know. I I'm skeptical that this really changes anything, honestly. The only possibility is the one you hit on, which is it could provide a nice little opening for PO, but I think there's really a ceiling on PO. I mean, one of the things I noticed, you know what, Kevin, this was one of my other takeaways, is that the metagame evolved in such a way that, and it's weird, it evolved basically since Modern Horizons, such that Collector's Oof was really not where you wanted to be. Yeah. Did Joe Brennan have any Collector's Oofs? He did. He had two collectors oof in his main but no more in the okay. sideboard no more so in the sideboard. i feel like that is a, a tacit acknowledgement of what you observed because a lot of people yeah. have extra oofs in their sideboard and that has diminished yeah i feel like you know so so what i'm saying is there's a nice little check waiting of po surges we'll see s- some more null rods some more stony silence some more collectors oofs you know some more force of vigors that kind of thing lavinia's i, I don't think i don't think po can get out of control Right. So I I I'm not I'm not in the camp. You know, I think PO loses just about as much as it gains. 
I mean, I think the PO decks, you know, the PO decks, I think, liked having the Narset for the big, you know, drop the wheel on you post Narset. True. That's true. <laughs> and that now is gone. You yeah. know, they'll still have one Narset. Um, I just, I guess at the end of the day, it seems like a whole lot of, a whole hullabaloo about nothing. It's not like Karn. Like when they restricted Karn, okay, that archetype is gone. Yeah. You know, that thing is done. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Well, this it, really for many just reasons. Doesn't... Yeah, the Karn deck was a four of, and it was designed fundamentally to find and cast that card on the first turn. <laughs> Narset is yeah. nothing like that. Exactly. It's, but what I'm saying is it's not even like Dig its closest comparison either, yeah. because Dig was just abused by one archetype, whereas Narset was just omnipresent. And the only re- it wasn't like there was something particularly special about Narset's effect that made it omnipresent, or its ability that made it omnipresent. Yeah. What made it omnipresent is that it was blue-blue, instead of blue-red, or blue-green, or blue-white. Yeah. Right, you know? right. If Dak was blue-blue one, it would have seen way more play back at, you know, before Narset was printed. Then, and it just obviously interacts poorly with Narset, which means that you have to have more Narsets than Dak, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, but my point is that what was special about Narset was the fact that it was straight blue, so it could go into any blue deck. Yeah, I completely agree. And I would also throw out there that if you're looking for comparisons to restrictions in recent history, I'm wondering if the Narset restriction isn't closest in function to the Golgari Grave Troll restriction. <laughs> oh, wow, though. You're going to have to explain that leap of logic, but go ahead. <laughs> For the reasons you just stated, like the replacements, the value over replacement ah. for Narset, for the, the cards you're going to put in. Obviously, Grave Troll was always a four of, and Narset is habitually a two or a three of, so that contributes. But to your point, what are they going to replace it with? They were going to replace it with maybe. Uh, a, a, a second or third copy of a card that's also disruptive, like yeah, go from two to three Lavinias, right? Yeah, you a, a Jace the Mind Sculptor, Jace the Mind a, Sculptor. A Faden, yeah, uh, you put um, yeah. you put you the Merchant Scroll back in that you had cut, right? And the way these shuttle these subtle changes play yes. out on average is not that different, right? It's a that, it's a total. It's going to be a large wash. Yeah, the cards yeah. themselves might be significantly different. Like a Merchant Scroll is dramatically different than a, a Darset in, in many matchups. But the <laughs> practical upshot is you've traded a different kind of consistency, and now I'm going to find Ancestral or Force of Will more often. And you know, you've, it's six of one, half dozen the other. You, you know what might be an ironic outcome of this is that it actually makes Nar- this restriction may make Narset more obnoxious, not less. Yes, because. Because the, the the bad feels of your opponent getting their singleton Narset will feel so much worse, yeah, than, than an environment where you're bi- where everyone is fighting Narset and you're kind of loaded to bear against it. Yeah, it's it could be far more obnoxious. <laughs> I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that um, you know we talked about when we did our um, our set review of. Um, are you talking about War of the Spark? Narset yeah, set? Yeah, we did with our War of the Spark set review. We yeah. spent a lot of time in it, kind of our summary discussion about, about these one-sided planeswalkers. You know, we talked about how they're really going to be... It, it, it just a bad design that, yeah. you know, we, we were... You know, a lot of people... I've heard a lot of people talk about that recently. I feel like we were way ahead of the curve on that. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think that also, if you didn't have these other restrictions, Narset wouldn't have come... So quite so much into focus you know and, yeah. and i think like it, it, this was a partly a cascade effect you know it's partly 
um, the fact that again it was, it's just can go into all the blue decks. And I also think it's it was just a you know because of its prevalence, it became it reached an untenable level of obnoxiousness. Um, that in a, if the environment hadn't quite you know evolved in this direction because of all these other restrictions, that it might not have re- reached that threshold level of obnoxiousness. And I also you know I also wonder. Here's one other X factor, Kevin. How much of Oko is responding to Narset? How do you mean? I mean the the ability to like instantly turn my mocks, you know, into a slash panther. How yeah. much of that is like will the restriction of Narset have a knock-on effect on Oko or will it make Oko more power? No, negative in it in a downward yeah. direction or will it create another space or two for people to play more Okos? I think that I I agree with you that Oko had the fact that Oko was so useful in so many contexts, and one of them was pressuring an opponent's Narset, I think did contribute an to how much one. yeah how much yeah. Narset how much Oko was played. At the same time, the Oko numbers are from a, for an individual deck are so low on average. Like it was <laughs> it was heavily played, but I would it imagine was, that the median number in decks that played it was only one. So what I'm asking is, is it going to go up or is it going to go down? I think it's. I think the the change there is going to be so imperceptible in light of all <laughs> other metagame changes yeah. that it's going to be very hard to me- to measure and attribute. Meaning, a, a metagame shift away from rug is going to be far more impactful to Oko's numbers than than this restriction. Like, so the systemic effects are too are are more loud than this small interaction. I think. Do you think the metagame will shift away from rug because PO will get a slight boost? I don't know. Or do you it, think too, is, is Rug good against PO? I mean, I don't really know. I mean, you said that. Well, it, the thing Rug is, Rug is best against Xerox. Yeah, and worse but against also Oaks. one of the things that we've taken away from this year's champs and the, the events both preceding and succeeding it are that the metagame is reacting strongly in in and of itself, uh, irrespective of the restriction. Right? Like the the presence of Oko at champs was a, a real flash in the pan. It was real surprising and a confluence of events right my expectation ignoring this restriction was that dynamicism would continue and we've seen it continue in you know in light of the the contents of the last challenge top eight right from from two days ago which included five dredge decks which we don't really need to decompress right here but the the simple truth is i was expecting the meta the metagame dynamicism to continue and so i wasn't thinking that there was going to be this standing dominance of rug throughout the format I, I I would not propose that at all. I just think that the the best builds of certain approaches at the moment all kind of conspired at this one moment to feature Narset and Oko very strongly. But I don't expect that to be the the standard for any reasonable amount of time. So your question is interesting, and I think it's it's worth looking back on. But I I don't think it's going to be. I don't think we're going to be able to answer it in the way that you framed it. Okay. I think Oko is going to continue to be a popular vintage card. It, it will probably wax and wane because it, it does require a pretty narrow set of conditions to be mm-hmm. to be very popular. Like Rug has to be good. I there's probably some there's probably some Bant deck out there that could play an Oko. But honestly, I, I think that its homes, while diverse, are are hemmed into Rug uh, configurations for systemic reasons. And I don't think I think the ceiling on Oko is like the two copies that. That are played in the rug, the, the rug walkers okay. list, or the two I, copies I just, in the rug PO list. I, I think I was more in, interested in in not whether we'd see more or less Oko, but why. 
you know it's, yeah, the- so what and the reason is because i wanted to try and unpack or uncover the precise relationship between oko and narset yeah which i i believe there is one i believe there is yeah and that so that relationship that didactic between the two of them is a, a small part of oko's value in the format right it, i would guess it's less than half and i probably less than a quarter of oko's value in the format and it's worth noting that you're not eliminating that value. You're just trimming it by by half or two-thirds, right? <laughs> because there's still going to be plenty of games that involve a Narset, and your Oko is going to serve the same purpose in those games. So when you take a small part of a small part, you end up with a pretty small change. <laughs> because Oko's primary role, for example, in the PO lists was its flexibility against multiple threats. Its flexibility against Narset and Collector Oof and Null Rod and... Uh, other things, uh, other kinds of planeswalkers like Teferi and Lavinia, right? So mm-hmm. there's still a diversity of threats that Oko can answer out of the rug PO list. The fact that there will be slightly fewer uh, Narsets out of that deal is just, go- you know, has a, a very small effect, I think, overall. Well, Narset is dead. Long live Narset. Yeah. And it, we, it will be long lived. Yeah, absolutely it will. Because <laughs> it's not going anywhere from a restricted status no. anytime soon. No. Um, no. I, I just wanted to add if one any, thing. If anything, anyone who would consider not playing it will just automatically put one of them now. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just wanted to add one thing that supports what you were saying about how universal Narset is because she was mono blue, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that Narset is mono blue meant that in practice, the answers to her really revolved strongly around answers to blue because we have Pyroblast slash Red Elemental Blast that are so good in the format uh, in general. The fact that those answers are such good answers, one mana red spells, right, that have you're universally applicable also contributes to your conclusion that there's not going to be much change because it's not like the answers to Narset were highly specialized, right? Mm-hmm. I am as a rug player. They're probably useful. Yeah, yeah, I'm not incentivized to cut a bunch of pyroblasts from my deck now. No, of course. Yeah, that's right. the other thing. That's why I that just reinforces my point. Exactly. I that's that's the, what I'm trying to say. Just, <laughs> this is the least impactful restriction of all time. <laughs> well, and it's again, it's going to change almost nothing. Well, seriously, that's why I drew the, con- the comparison to the Golgari Grave Troll restriction. Is it didn't materially yeah. change the way Dredge True. plays, and it doesn't materially yeah. change the way anybody plays against it. Actually, I think I think the Golgari Grave Troll thing is more impactful because what it, what the, that restriction did is it immediately made the dredge deck harder to fire off Force of Vigor. Sure, it does because the the dredge decks now don't have enough green spells to be reliably turn one Force of Vigor. Right, but so I actually think that well, but but what you're observing there was a difference between like what sixteen or seventeen green spells and fourteen or 13, fifteen, twelve, 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 thirteen. I mean, yeah. it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a gap of more than three, though, was it? It wasn't from 17 to no. 12. It was, a, it was for like 15 to 12, right? Well, that's a, that's a, yeah, pretty, right. a pretty minor impact that's measurable, but still small. So you're right. Long live Narset. <laughs> but I also think, I think it may end up being the least impactful restriction in modern vintage. Yeah. In like the last, in the last you know, seven years. Uh, we'll as, see. Com- as compared to the last dozen, it, uh, undoubtedly. <laughs> undoubtedly we'll have to uh, do an assessment after mention. the fact so we'll have to do an assessment later this year or early next year to talk about do we think that the narset restriction was the least impactful on the format of of all time <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny we didn't even talk about mental misstep and yet the restriction of mental misstep is possibly the it's certainly a nominee for the biggest story of the year 
Absolutely. You know, or yeah, it's it's just so subtle in its effects. I mean, fastball wouldn't be nearly as good with you know. So anyway, there's a lot a lot to be there. That's right. That's um, a really good point. Bugs Bugs dominance would it, would Bugs ability to win certainly its dominance in August would not have occurred. Uh, would not have occurred with the with misstep unrestricted. I think. I think you're right, and there's just there's so many systemic effects that it's I'm loath to point to any one. But if fast bond wasn't nearly as good as it is because it was a four misstep format, a lot of those lands players would have been playing Eldrazi at champs this year. And what does Eldrazi prey on? Paradoxical outcome. Yep. So imagine all those outcome players that had such a high win percentage against the field this year at champs having to slog through one more Eldrazi player, you know, in the Swiss. <laughs> and imagine the effect that that would have had on PO's win percentage. It's just, and, and I, I know I'm being over simple because the systemic effects are broad, but just that little daisy chain of, of events and causality could have dramatically changed everything about this year's champs. All for want of a nail, Kevin. So, <laughs> great, great, great tournament, though. I think great fun. I'm, I'm loving the vintage experience. Although I, I'm, I'm the kind of, per- I'm in the the camp that I think it's been great all year. There's really nothing I haven't. In- there's nothing I haven't enjoyed this year. The most boring months of the year were the first two months of the year. <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything has been exciting since then. Well, for you and I who who feast on analysis, this year has been a smorgasbord of analysis <laughs> and things True. to things to measure and and look at both before, during, and after. And it's this year is going to go down in history as one. I I, I genuinely big, hope that yeah. this year ha- goes down in history as one with the most dynamicism because I don't want every year to be like this. <laughs> it's I'm exciting. The kind of person, I actually really I really loved the 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 the, the sets. For all the complaining that on Twitter about um, players being unhappy with all the playables, I thought it was great. I yeah. I didn't complain about a single thing this year. <laughs> I thought this I I would honestly like every year to be this exciting in terms of both new sets that are exciting and mm-hmm. new cards that are exciting. I wish that I honestly love it. So. Well, that is an excellent preview of our next show. As we've already said, our year in review will be our next episode, and we will cover all of that and more as we discuss and debate our moxies for the year. So if you're listening to this, give us, give us your thoughts in advance. We'll, we'll reach out on social media again before we record that show, of course, but we're definitely going to be keen to hear people's thoughts on what the highlights of this year are for you. So and thanks. by the Oh, go ahead. Before we, before we sign off, I just wanted to point out, there have now been, I believe, 101 restrictions and 50 unrestrictions. So. Oh, fascinating. Interesting. Yeah, so we're now, prior to this, literally 50% of the cards that have ever been restricted have been unrestricted. Now we're back out of balance, then uh, <laughs> more have been more have been restricted than, than unrestricted. So Interesting. Well, our next show we look forward to, it'll be an exciting one, but until then, thank you for listening to episode 95 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other Magic players can find our show. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Goodbye!